Happy Easter. You know, uh, this is the 9 o'clock crew, right? And uh, for me, we start at 7.30, right? Already one service in. So on a day like today, uh, somebody like me who's not normally a coffee drinker um, hits the coffee stand. And so right now I might be a little bit hepped up on coffee. I'm not used to it. And so I just warned some people that were new. I said, hey, if I do something weird, um, it's the coffee, and uh, so don't, uh, don't, don't uh, hold that against me, but it's great to see you today, and I love that you're here worshiping with us, and what a great day, and what a great way just to uh, celebrate our risen Lord, and uh, I already feel His presence here with us. Um, this is just amazing. Passion is one of the most beautiful and best words in our language. I mean, as soon as it rolls off your tongue, it's just like, it's a word that just brings emotion, doesn't it? It's a passion, and it, you just feel something in that word. We've talked about over these last month that, um, you know, our world is, is full of knowledge, of finding new knowledge, of educating ourselves, and bettering our civilization through knowledge. And the more we understand, the better off we are. And, and knowledge is good. Skill is good, right? We're all trying to become better at what we do and how we live. And we have done such an incredible job of developing our abilities. And we have created uh, marvelous, really crazy things that a hundred years ago people wouldn't have even been able to imagine through ability and skill is good. But what makes a difference in this world is passion. Passion is what makes the difference. What our families need, what our communities are looking for, what our schools desperately need, and what the marketplace around our world has to have is people that are passionate about what they're doing. They are on fire, so to speak. And in that passion for whatever it is they're doing, they make a difference. Passion is what makes a difference in our world. And passion has never been displayed better than when Jesus walked through the final week of his earthly ministry. This is passion personified. Look, if you want to look in a dictionary, how does passion look like? They should have right there the last week of Jesus' ministry or life here on earth. And we have walked with him over, these, over this past month, seeing and feeling and understanding that passion. And quite honestly, last week we saw that there's no greater picture of passion than Jesus hanging on a cross. Last week we left with the weight of Jesus' passion for our forgiveness. That was his passion. It drove him to that cross, led him to that cross, energized him to that cross was a passion to see you and I have the opportunity to be forgiven, to be restored. Last week, we also left Jesus laying dead in a tomb. We, we stopped the story there. We left considering what that is. 
But we would have to ask the question is, is that all that passion is? Or is that all that passion led him to do? Is this the passion that simply leads somebody to be a martyr? And that's all. And as we're moved by his work on the cross, are we simply moved by such a great sacrifice that it it causes awe, it causes gratefulness, it inspires us to, to, uh, to some kind of compassion, just his weight, his work on the cross, is that all there is? Is that what passion led to? And is that what, just like we talk about in our own culture, when we think back through our own history of our country and we're moved when we think about the beaches of Normandy and the fields of Gettysburg and, and um, those men who bled and died uh, at Saratoga and we're moved by that, right? And we think, wow, they died. I'm free and I I ought to live better. I ought to respect that freedom. I ought to, to be more mindful and conscious of what I am. Is that the kind of passion that Jesus' death conjures in our life? Is that where it led to? And yet, as you open the gospel narratives, And as you read the story of the one who is Jesus the Christ, we see that it doesn't stop on that cross and in that tomb. And you've already, we've already read the words this morning as they came to that tomb and the angel said to them, he is not here, he has risen. And the cross is definitely not the end of Jesus' story. Although it was pivotal and it was climactic in his life the cross is not the end it is not all that there is if this is a drama if Jesus life is a drama it's simply a powerful end to a first act but there is a second act there is a continuation of the story there is something that this builds on and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ In fact, it is the resurrection, that is the event by which God validates, validates the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. There is no salvation, there is no Christianity if Christ doesn't rise. It was just a remarkable death and a remarkable sacrifice, but there is nothing beyond that if he doesn't rise from the dead. And in fact, based off of Jesus' words and the, and the gospels that he, or the gospel he inspired and, and the writers that follow his life, if he does not rise, in fact, Jesus is not just a martyr, he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a charlatan, he's a fraud. Paul writes in Corinthians, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then our preaching is in vain and our faith also is in vain. In fact, we're false witnesses of God because we testified on behalf of God that he did raise Jesus from the dead. And if he didn't do that, and in fact the dead are not raised, then Christ would not be raised. And if Christ is not, be, is not risen, your faith, our faith is worthless. We are still in our sins. You know, we spent the last two Easter's here at Napnaz trying to see uh, from different ways that the resurrection is the most proven, most reliable, ancient historical event. It is an undeniable fact. But what does that mean? What is that? 
If you're a Star Wars fan and, and uh, you remember the, I think it's the fourth one, the Star Wars, The Force Awakens, begins with this line. I'm almost tempted to see who's Star Wars fans here and who could tell me that line because some of those guys are like freaks, right? They can tell you everything. That's all right. The way that that Star Wars opens is with this line. This will begin to make things right. Broken hearts, broken bodies, broken relationships, broken weather, nature, broken economies and political systems, broken dreams, broken, broken, broken. And on the day that he rose from the dead, he begins to make all of those things right. N.T. Wright would say it this way, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and the pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means that Jesus is only raised in some kind of spiritual sense, then it literally becomes only about me and my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are epidemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan with all of the energy of God to implement victory over uh, the victory of Jesus over all that is broken in this world. His rising is the beginning of him making all things new. Him restoring this world. Him capturing our broken hearts and lives. Yes, it begins with individuals, but that is the beginning of what he is going to do. And we read about in the revelation of God restoring everything that was broken and making it new. Catalyst for that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his victory. But what I'm calling you to consider this morning is wrapped up in a word, supernatural. Supernatural. You see, in the resurrection, the natural world is suspended. The ordinary is replaced Reason is left speechless by this resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have come this morning and you have uh, uh, come in the doors and you have sung and you are celebrating something that is out of the ordinary. It is supernatural. The basis for our faith as Christian believers is in something supernatural natural. You say, Chip, I I get that. I'm not sure that I'm totally comfortable with all that that means. But yes, I can believe that something supernatural happened to Jesus over 2,000 years ago. 
I mean, I don't know how that fits into my science box. My intellectual database can't quite compute all that that means. But I can see that the evidence has proven it out, that he did do that. And so, Chip, I'm in on Jesus having the supernatural happen to him. I get that. But what I want to convey to you this morning is that the events that surround this supernatural resurrection show us something more, something greater than just supernatural, a supernatural happening in one man's life. The narrative is so much bigger than just Jesus rose from the dead. The gospels don't stop there. Matthew doesn't stop with, and then he rose from the dead, period, end of chapter, end of book. Luke doesn't stop with, and then he rose from the dead, end of chapter, end of book. John, the same way. They, the gospel narrative, the writings of God himself communicating his truth to us, what we need to know, what we need to see, what we need to grasp and believe doesn't stop with just the resurrection. It goes much deeper than simply the truth of he is who he said he was. He is a reliable figure. He is the savior of the world. All those things are true and we celebrate that today, but the gospel narrative goes beyond just the empty tomb. It is the catalyst for something greater something more and it calls us to something than simply just believing the facts of this guy had supernatural happening in his life and he rose from the dead in fact I think Paul says it best what I want to convey to you when he's praying or God himself is praying through Paul for us and it's in that Ephesians chapter 1 when he begins his prayer in this way I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The light bulb comes on. You see something new. You, you, you are exposed to new truth. You're able to walk now because you can see in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of the glorious inheritance that he has given to, that he has given to his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. His incomparable great power. And this is how he, mod he, he uh, modifies that. He says this, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of, in the heavenly realms. His prayer is that you and I would tap in to what that day was truly about. He came for one purpose. That was to redeem us. He lived and died with that on his mind. But also when he rose from the dead, he did all of that with this simple idea in mind so that you and I in our broken, lost empty lives could experience the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. <laughs> That's what this is more about. We celebrate 
the historical fact and the, the realization that God has triumphed. God is victorious. God is supernatural. But what does that mean for you and me? And we see that as we continue to read in the gospel narrative that it does mean something to you and me. It was for you and me. The prayer was the same power that raised him is the same power that I want to work in your life. So let's dig in a little bit and see just three figures in the scriptures as they continue to write that gospel narrative and they, the spill out of Jesus is risen from the dead. There's an empty tomb. But why do they keep writing? What are they wanting us to see? Why does he share with us different people and, and things? What is it trying to communicate to us? And I would notice the first one is uh, in John chapter 20. You see the sequence of events that day or that early in the, in the morning that some, some devoted followers of Jesus that were women um, had, had desired to go to the tomb. And their hope was that it seems like on Friday that it was a hasty burial. It was, let's get this guy in, you know, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And it seems like it was a hasty burial and these women just wanted to complete the, uh, the perfuming of the body and the oils on the body. And, and so they go early. It says before dawn. And in fact, the, the story is that Mary Magdalene kind of moves ahead of the other women. She gets there first. It's obvious, as we'll see in a little bit, that her life has absolutely been centered and changed, consumed with Jesus, and she just can't help herself. She's gotta get there. She's gotta do something about this. She's gotta complete the burial process for this one who, she, who loved her and she loved. And we see that she arrives and she realizes, whoa, something's wrong here, right? They had hoped that somebody would be there to move the stone so they could go in. The stone's gone. It's obvious. There's, and as she realizes something has happened, she turns abruptly and she is on a mission to find Peter and John, his, his disciples, and to let them know, hey, we got an issue here. Something's happened. They've, somebody's come in and has taken the body. And as she's going, the other women come in and see the same thing. And we read that Peter and John would, would run back, would run to the tomb and with Mary. And we would read that Peter would look in and, and realize. And the story says that uh, he looks and then he leaves. He's, he's unsure what to do with it. We read that John, though, um, and for other reasons, another sermon, he looks and he believes in that moment. John, it comes together for John uh, at the beginning of him believing, coming together. But then they leave and the women leave. What are they gonna do? There's nothing there. But Mary Magdalene stays. It's like she just can't leave. And we would read in John chapter 20, we would read this. Mary stood out soon outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, and, and these are really strong words, like she is sobbing. She is overwhelmed. She's kind of like me when I cry. It ain't pretty. It's ugly. And there's a lot of, well, I don't know with her if there was a lot of snot, but there is with me. 
I need a Kleenex, and it's just ugly. I'm overwhelmed, right? She's, that's the state she's in. Remember Mary? Remember her life story? In Luke chapter 8, we would be introduced to her as Jesus is doing ministry. It says that some women were brought to him, and one of them was Mary of Magdalene. Uh, this was a town just a little bit north of where Jesus spent a lot of time. It was a wealthy town. There were dye and textile industries there. And, and Magdalene, it was a corrupt town. It was a wicked town. It was an evil town. It was wealthy, though. And she is brought to Jesus. And obviously, the reason why she's brought to Jesus, this woman who it seems to have means, it seems to have been well off, and it would seem like her life should just be uh, completely comfortable but we read in the, narrative, in the gospel story that she has been possessed by seven demons. Now, I think it's interesting the way that that's worded and the truth of it is. Seven's just kind of a spiritual, mystical number. It's really obvious what is being said and what is for us to understand is that she was absolutely captive to this. Her life was ruined Everything should have been right, but she is possessed. She is captured by these demons, and her life is just absolutely awful. You want to talk about um, the, the possession of demons destroying your mind and causing you to impulsively act in ways that you would never want, and you can picture that, right? She is just possessed by evil. And we read that Jesus sets her free. And from that moment on, you can, you're, you're familiar with her through the rest of his ministry. She is often following him, and she, is, uh, she appears at many different times. I believe it's 12 different times in the Gospels, Mary's there. She's a devoted follower of Jesus. He has absolutely taken her from being captive to evil to being set free. And that's no doubt why she is sobbing on that morning. I would remind you that the women who came, um, <clears throat> they don't know what's going on. They're not aware <laughs> that this is the first Easter. Um, she's not going hoping that the tomb was vacant. They're not discussing what their response is gonna be when they see Jesus. They have no idea and in fact, they have come to such a place in their lives that even though Jesus had done so much, they had watched him bleed out and die on a cross and it had so damaged their psyche and their whole frame of, of reference, their whole mindset was, was absolutely twisted that they didn't even dare to dream any dream except that we need to take care of his body. It's too late for the incredible. No doubt they realized the feet that had walked on water had now been pierced. The hands that had healed lepers had been stilled. Noble aspirations of what Jesus was going to do has now been spiked into Friday's cross. And all Mary has, has come to do is to put warm oil on a cold body and bid farewell to the one who had given her reason for all of her hope. She expects the worst because she didn't expect the resurrection. And all she can see is somebody has taken his body. And after all that he had done for me, I just wanted to be able to give him a decent burial. And it's just the, 
the, the drama of the last couple days, it's like it culminates in, and now they've even stolen his body. And we read that Mary is weeping and crying and she bends over to look into the tomb and she sees two angels in white seated where Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they ask her, and again, in her grieving state, and if you've cried so much, sometimes you can't really focus, just tears are filling your eyes. She, she doesn't realize that they're angels. She just thinks they're uh, groundskeeper type people. And she said, they, they ask her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, and I, I don't know where they have put him. And at that moment, she's in grief, and she just turns away, and there she encounters Jesus standing there. But she didn't recognize, she didn't realize who it was. In fact, it, it, uh, and he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she, thinking he was, again, a caretaker, someone in that garden that would have taken care of, uh, of the grounds, she says, listen, sir, if you have carried him away, just tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. I'll go take care of him. Just tell me. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turns to him and cries out. The light comes on. The recognition is there. She says, Rabboni, which is teacher, master. And she's going to hug him. Probably, uh, it seems like the women later on hug his feet, just in a sense of absolute devotion. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go tell your brother, to go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary goes to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she tells them everything that had been said to her. And if you're reading the Gospels, and if you're realizing, wow, He's risen. The story is taking a supernatural turn. This is something that I'm going to have to absolutely grasp and embrace. I can understand dying. That seems like a normal, it doesn't seem normal or legitimate, but it is done. And Jesus died a death, but all of a sudden, I am going to need to see and realize and experience that this story is something beyond the ordinary and the natural. It's supernatural. He has risen from the dead. And the first person he appears to, though, is Mary. I love, I love this thought. She had lingered at the tomb, just hoping to find him dead. He lingered at the tomb, waiting to show himself to her alive. To her. Of all people, he could have spoken. He first goes to her. As Max Licato would eloquently say, he just ripped the gates off the hinges of hell. He just yanked the fangs out of Satan's mouth. He just turned B.C. into A.D. Jesus was absolutely undisputed king of the universe. And what was his first act? To whom does he go? To Mary, the weeping, heartbroken woman, who had seven demons. Why? Why her? As far as we know, she didn't become a missionary, a famous missionary. No epistle bears her name. No New Testament story describes her work. Why did Jesus create this moment for Mary Magdalene? 
I can't help but to think it was to prove this promise. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. Joy now comes because Jesus comes. And I love this thought in seeing this story, this picture of Mary, that even when we do not recognize Jesus' face, he is always calling out our name. See, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. Your name is not buried in some heavenly file. God doesn't need a name tag to jog his memory about who you are. Your name is tattooed. It's engraved on his hands. In fact, he has more thoughts about you than the Atlantic Ocean has grains of sand. And in Mary, what is God trying to help us see? (laughs) That this resurrection... This resurrection comes to those who are the most severely disappointed about the circumstances and the conditions of this life. I mean, man, she had it really bad. Then she had it really good. And now she's got it even worse. Everything's been dashed. What purpose, what meaning? And now it's all turned back on its head. Why would he have us know this story? Why Mary? Why, what? I believe it's to always communicate to us that God's, or Jesus' resurrection power reaches to those who have been severely, severely disappointed with their lives. The disappointment this world brings through its fallen, broken condition so often hurts and stings and decimates our very lives. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all know what it is to live in a life that brings about disappointment, that brings about hurt. And seemingly often it's, okay, God, what are you doing? And why did this happen to me? And so often our minds become consumed with the disappointment of this life. And the unfairness of this world and the injustices that many times have touched our own, our own world. And we can't see God through it all. Oh, the disappointment and the pain and the hurt. And so often we can't believe, we can't see because that is just a cloud over our life. It dictates what we choose. It it determines the destiny we decide to take, and we live literally with a limp, with a cripple in our life, because life is just disappointing, and it's not fair, and I've just got to try to do the best I can. (laughs) He appears resurrected to Mary to remind us that the power he has is a power over the disappointment of this world and the power to heal that in our lives. Amen. I don't know today. I might be talking to some of you who've come in. You're invited by a friend. You're not really into this Jesus thing. Uh, you, you believe it's probably true. Yeah, I get that. People I know, most of, the, most of the people I know that are Christians, I, I, I get that. They're so real and, they're, and, they're, and they're, they're just real, they're authentic. I'm not sure in my own life because to be honest, this world doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, I've, you know, God, where are you at? Or why have you done? Or, and I would tell you that in his resurrection, 
It is the catalyst for making your life new. It is a catalyst that brings about healing into a disappointed life. And he calls for you to experience that power, that same power that raised him from the dead, that triumphed over death. How much more could it not uh, triumph in our own lives of disappointment, of hurt? His resurrection power brings healing into our lives. Another figure I would introduce you to is, is that one that we're so familiar with, and that's, that's the leader of the whole gang. That's Peter, right? We read that post-resurrection, the writings after he is risen, we see that intentionally, at least three times, there's a point made in Mark, after what Ben read, the next verse, the angel would have said, the angel would have said in Mark 16 and 7, he would have said that, yeah. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. In Luke chapter 24, the Lord, it says, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. In John chapter 21, we would read that one of the big scenes of Jesus after being res resurrected from the dead is spending time restoring and healing Peter from his broken, disappointed condition. And what is the point being made here? <laughs> Peter is an exhibit on failure. I mean, he is an exhibit on failure. The guy could not get out of his own way. And as good of intentions as he always had, and as sometimes he would, he would make such bold steps, ultimately he would walk on water for a step and then fall. He would do something bold and then cave. And surely we see that in these last days, over the last few days, as he has said, well, Jesus, if you're going to, if you're going to be captured by the Jewish leaders, if you're going to be executed, then I'm going to go right there with you. I'm, I'm with you, man. I've got your six. And then he did what? He turns and runs like a coward. In fact, even three times he had a chance, and he, all three times. He is exhibit on what failure looks like. And yet... The gospel story is that the resurrected Jesus specifically seeks out Peter the failure and does something so miraculous in his life that Peter goes from a guy who in the heat of the moment and when it gets hot runs to being the guy who preaches the first sermon, the guy who's at the front of all the persecution that they would face, the guy who ultimately gives his life for the gospel and tradition says that he was hung on a cross just like Jesus. Actually, tradition says that Peter says, listen, you're gonna hang me on that cross, but you're gonna hang me upside down because I'm not even worthy to, to die like my Lord does. What is the transformation from failure and hit and miss and can't get out of his own way and captive to his own, um, uh, his own desires and, and personality? What is the difference? It all changes when the resurrected Lord comes into his life. The power of God's resurrection not only raised Jesus from the dead, but it is now the same power that exists 
to reach out to people like you and me who have failed so often. And it does a new thing in our life. It changes us from failure to forgiven and of being set free. (laughs) The third character I want you to notice is this guy we call Thomas, right? If you were to relive the story, you would see that on that Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead, he appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to the other women. He, uh, he appears to two on the road to Emmaus. And then later that evening, as obviously the disciples, Peter and John, guess what they're doing? They don't have phones then, no cell phones, not even dial phones. They somehow get the word to one another, hey, something's went down, Jesus is gone. We, we gotta get together and they, they congregate on that Sunday evening together. Now the scriptures would tell us that they were, they were in a room and it was dead bolted. It was locked, they are scared to death, they're terrified because in their minds, Jesus has just been arrested and executed as a criminal. And those who associated with him could also be arrested and executed as criminals. They're scared to death that they're gonna give their own lives. And so they get together to talk about this, but they are terrified. They're scared for their lives and they're disillusioned. And in that, in that room, Jesus comes to them on that Sunday night. And he says, peace be with you. But we would read that there were 10 of them. Obviously, Judas had, was not a part of the, the disciples anymore. He had actually taken his own life. And Thomas didn't even bother to show that night. It's obvious why he wasn't there. This had absolutely wrecked his world. And we like to throw darts at Thomas so often. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? Most of you would would recognize that. But honestly, if you read about Thomas earlier in the Gospels, you would see a guy who, he's a straight up, he was a straight up guy. I mean, in fact, there was a moment when things were getting really heated with the authorities, and, and if, if they were going to go close to Judea, they all thought, hey, if we are close to the authorities, they're going to nab Jesus, and they're going to kill us all. And Thomas actually said, listen, guys, if that's the way it is, I'm going. I'm good. I'll just go and die with Jesus. I'm okay. I mean, Thomas is a stand-up guy. He's not weak. He just has, he's so real. He's such a, I just see him as such a, uh, a guy who feels deeply and loved deeply and, and uh, was just so, okay, so factual, so. And as he watched Jesus die on that cross, he was so demoralized that it's obvious he didn't even bother to show up. Hey, Thomas, we're meeting here. Yeah, go ahead. I'm out. I'm done. I'm not even. And so when Jesus appears to the ten, Thomas is not there. And we would read John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. You get this. You got ten of your best friends, guys that you've lived with for three years. 
You've literally all suspended your lives together to follow Jesus. And for, it says, for a week, they've been telling him over and over. And the language here is they were continually saying, Thomas, you've got to believe. We've seen him. We've seen him. Ten of them. Ten of your best friends told you the same thing. I think you'd be apt to believe it, would you not? But Thomas is so damaged. He's so demoralized that he literally says this to them. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And the story says that a week later, for a week they've been telling him this and he keeps saying, absolutely not. The language here is Thomas is adamant. I don't care what you saw, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You ever gotten to that point in your life where life is so messed with you and the disappointment, the failures are there that it's created such a cloud, a world of doubt and cynicism, skepticism that you just don't even want to go to even believe that there's any hope or that things really turn out or that life can be anything better than just this. And he's at that point. And it says a week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas actually is now hanging out with them but he's still not believing and, and though the doors were locked, Jesus comes and stood among them and says, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, remember this is what God wants us to see and know. These are the stories that are written for us. What is it he's trying to help us see? The resurrected Jesus says this to Thomas. Put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. Jesus actually said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written for one reason, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. What do I need to see about Thomas? What do I need to understand? In a world of increasing skepticism and cynicism, in a world where faith is threatened and each one of you and me myself live in, a, in, a, in a, an age now that because of our human accomplishments, it's so easy to press out the idea that supernatural is needed. But what has happened is doubt is now filling our minds to anything that would be supernatural. And Thomas is like so many of us. There is no way I am going to believe that. And yet, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to Thomas, and actually he does exactly what Thomas needed to know. Touch my hands. Feel my side. Stop doubting. Believe, Thomas. And that's what the resurrection does. The resurrection has the ability to give us power over doubt and power to believe again. 
I might be talking to people here that, um, again, you just are a little bit skeptical about this whole resurrection thing or Jesus. And I would invite you to consider Thomas today. There's probably a lot of reasons to doubt a lot of things in this world. I would agree with you there's a lot of reasons why we can be skeptical. But Jesus, through his resurrection power, has the ability to take us to a new world of living, to a living that is energized by the supernatural, by the power of his Holy Spirit coming into your world, chasing doubt away, and making sense of this broken, fallen, disjointed world. And I would remind you today that Jesus, it's more than just a historical fact that we come in and say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you're great, you did that. I believe that, I, you know, I, I identify with that. No, it was far bigger than that. And the gospel continues to write to us after. What is it trying to show us that Jesus has power over people that are so disappointed with life, so hurt by life that they can't see that his power can heal their whole world? It's this resurrection power that he shows in dealing with Peter that shows us you can be marked and your your whole history can be littered with failure and you can see yourself as just simply a failure. You can't get out of your own way, but yet Jesus shows us in his resurrection power that he can bring into our life an ability to forgive us and to free us in such a way that we're not just a failure. For those of you that might live (laughs) surrounded, overwhelmed by just doubt, skepticism, cynicism, can I remind you that what Jesus does is what he did with Thomas. He will come into your world and he will come and meet you right where you're at. Thomas needed to feel and he did that for him. Because his resurrection power is is so legitimate that it causes us to believe in something that is supernatural. But in believing in that, our lives are changed. The experience of millions, millions of people. This world has never been different. Or it's always been different because people have experienced the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. My story is absolutely 180 degrees different because Jesus rose and that power lives in me. I invite you to stand this morning. We're gonna sing as we go and I don't know. I wanted to share this knowing that there might be some people today that have not even given Jesus a chance. Think it's just a crutch or... I think it's just a system of belief that, you know, kind of orders the way people live. And I want to share with you this morning, it's far beyond that. It's way beyond that. He rose so that he could cause a resurrection in your broken, sinful, lost, empty life. A, a power over disappointment, a power over failure, a power over doubt. That's what he brings. And then I know I'm talking to the church today. 
And so often, even those who have seen Jesus and have experienced his power in our life, it's so easy sometimes to drift back into the disappointments of this world, capturing our minds, or the failure of our own lives. We just think, man, Lord, I just can't seem to get this. Or maybe it's even the, uh, the doubt. We just look around and we just, I want to remind you that he calls us to live day in and day out in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And in that life, it changes our world completely. Would you consider this as we sing and before we go?
Father, we go, we live, realizing that every day of our lives is impacted by your resurrection power. Disappointment, failure, doubt is chased away, and our lives are changed because you rose and you give us the opportunity to experience that same power. May this be the realization and the testimony of our lives. Go with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great Easter.